Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Robert Suter, the VP of IBM Q Strategy and Research, and we discuss advancements made in quantum computing, knowing who your target audience is when delivering a message, and identifying the characteristics about yourself that will give you satisfaction in what you do. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello. Hi, this is Bob Sutor. How are you? Okay. I like those fish. What are, are you in a cabin? <laughs> yeah, this is, um, <laughs> this is a, a place up in the northern Adirondacks in New York State. Okay. Uh, so uh, we're, we're on a lake. There's the lake. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just happen to have that picture of trout back there and uh you know is that your standard summer getaway yeah yeah we bought it a few years ago and um when we first got it it was kind of remote you know that is there was this really pathetic satellite internet and uh, a landline and within a year we had fiber optic and cell service so uh during the summer i i try to work remotely from here as much as possible nice um, you know um because in the winter it gets to minus thirty, and uh, I don't come here. No, you stay stay far away. Where where do you stay when it's not when it's minus thirty? So my home is near Rochester, New York. Oh, yeah? um, but I work out of the the research lab. I'm in research lab north of New York City. Um, but really, the story is I go where I need to be. You know, so if I'm with a client or I'm giving a talk or I need to be at the lab or yeah, I just make it work. I, I spent a lot of time up there in between the Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse area. Oh, okay. Were you in yeah. school up there or? Uh, no, just doing so software. <laughs> okay. Software. Yes. I, I would eat at like Wegmans or Charlie the Butcher when I was in Buffalo. Right. And I just spent time bouncing between those three cities. It was, it was a good time up there. You know, it's funny. We joke about it, but if you're not from the area, you, um, I don't think you realize the impact that Wegmans has on quality of life up there. Um, we, we live in a village about 30 miles south of Rochester. And when my, my wife was a history professor, and so when she was interviewing for her, her job there, um, they actually took her to Wegmans to, to say like, you know, like, oh yes, this is the university, this is all this. And, but let's go to Wegmans to prove that you're not in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> that, that you can buy bagels, right? <laughs> Like it's beautiful. The moment I came back to my town, we had no grocery stores like that. We do now where it's those amazing grocery stores. But I, I just was sad because I spent like, I lived up there for like three or four months while I was doing software. And it was just, it's so useful. It was such a brilliant idea that then spread throughout all the, the rest of the United right. States. Yeah. It's interesting because it's a family owned company, right? And which very much changes how they do things, why they do things, right? So obviously they have their own economic reasons for the expansion or doing what they do, but it's not driven by the stock market, which is different. <laughs> it's <laughs> <Sure>. different. <laughs> now, were you born in Rochester? No, I was born um, just north of New York City in, in, in a city called Yonkers. Okay. Um, and um, and then when I was about 11 years old, we moved a little bit further north. But I was part of the 
I guess it was a second generation born in the United States. So, you know, many people from Europe, they came over, they went through Ellis Island. Uh, I mean, they scattered, but there was huge concentrations of people near New York City. So, um, so my ancestors did that route. And, and then there was the diaspora, right, as further generations got further and further away. So, so I was born down there. And in fact, the lab, the IBM lab is, I don't know, 30 miles from where I was born, but I now live 300 miles. I just for, forgot to stop working there, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, did you get interested in technology when you were around 11? Like, when did that first happen for you? Um, it really happened when I was about 14 or 15. So, you know, here you have to remember, you know, the, 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 the times. So, so I'm 61 years old, just to put this in. Um, and so in the early 70s, so this had to been, when was I 15? So, um, 73, 1973. This was when computers were first being made available to schools. And they were stunningly primitive <laughs> compared to what we had. And uh, they were really teletype systems. So somewhere there was this computer, so it was remote, right? But you would have basically these teletype machines where you could program. Uh, in one case, we had an old adapted IBM Selectric typewriter, which operated as a terminal. Um, so everything was done on paper, right? There were no screen, screens at all. So I had a math teacher, who uh, George LaRose, who brought this into the school and I just started coding and um, you start your programs on paper tape. You, know, you might see in some of the old films, this tape with the dots in it and punched. Yeah, the punch cards. Yeah, so I wrote a word processor in APL uh, around 1975. Um, and, and then you were hooked? Yeah, yeah, I always, I, I always like computing. I mean, it's, you know, the nice thing about it, um, I like building things, you know, so I like building physical things, but, but programming and coding is, is like that as well. You can put things together, you can rip them apart, <laughs> you can put them back together again. Um, and um, that always appealed to a certain part of me. And, and then along the line, of course, I learned more about computers and computer science and mathematics. And Did that drive your decision of what college to pick where you could get some compute, some processing time? Um, no, I wasn't thinking in those terms. Um, it, when thinking about college, so, so not a lot of people historically in my family had gone to college. Um, and, and so um, I was doing very well in school and I had my heart set on going to the University of Rochester, oddly enough. Um, and the main reason was I had their catalog. And back then you had paper catalogs. And it was this Bible of like, wow, you can learn all these different things, right? And I just thought this was amazing. And I wanted to go there and they had beautiful photos and things like this. But then I applied to a number of schools and uh, one of the ones I got into was Harvard. And I said, well, I should probably go to Harvard. <laughs> that seems like a good idea. And, and that was enough reason <laughs> if you will, to decide where to go. Yeah, when Harvard invites you, you say yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured they could pretty much handle anything I, I sort of wanted to study. So. And then so now you're doing a lot of research. You've got a lot of experience in quantum computing and AI. Tell me about what you're learning. So, you know, it's when, when I was back in school, so undergraduate, then I have a PhD in mathematics. 
theoretical mathematics, right? Not applied mathematics, theoretical mathematics, which was for the, the beauty of it, the philosophical aspects, the intellectual elegance of it, and things like, like this. So I very much in particular saw physics as applied math in a way. And so I wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> um, now, on the other hand, the, the split part of my personality was I was doing computer science. And in fact, I divided up my, my graduate study, um, whereas I did two years in theoretical math. I took a leave of absence, um, really for two reasons. One was I was doing more computer science. And the other was, frankly, um, my, my fiance was starting graduate school 300 years away, that's 300 years, 300 miles away. The reason why I said years was- You guys uh, are time traveling over there, aren't you? Well- In your research facility. Yeah, it's well, okay, a little slip. The reason why I said years was because today is actually our anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Of 36 years, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so that seemed to be a good decision um, to, uh, to, to move to New Haven, Connecticut. Um, but then I went um, and I joined IBM. I'd been a summer student there, ended up in IBM research, ended up in the math department. They sent me back to, to school to finish. Um, but, you know, I, I had choices. I could have gone the professorial route, but I just really liked IBM. I, I liked research. I liked all the different things you could, you could work on. And then eventually I did, the, I did the business thing. So, so just to fast forward really to your question was, it's somewhat ironic that 35 to 40 years later, I now am learning a lot of physics. computing, <laughs> And, um, and it's, it, it's fun, you know, it, it's fun to be able to, you know, I still remember the math, right? And it's fun to get underneath it and to be thinking in those terms again. And uh, I, I understand why, in fact, some of, they did some of the theory in math because they needed it for the physics. Which, didn't know back then. So how would I explain quantum computing versus regular computing to like a board or investors or? So let me start by saying how you probably wouldn't explain it. And, and that is the way many of us have been explaining it for a long time. And, and it's, it's as if, so, so I'm, I'm holding up my smartphone, right? And in this case, it's an iPhone. And, you know, your question would be like, how would I explain how to use the smartphone to an everyday person? The way many of us in the past have thought about explaining quantum computing is saying, you know, not, oh, well, here's the screen and these apps and they do nice. It's like, well, really to understand your phone, we have to understand the physics of transistors. And once you're fully comfortable with the physics of transistors and we work completely up through the entire software stack, then I'll show you how to use an app, right? So with quantum computing, we spent a lot of time on the physics, you know, the, the, what corresponds to the transistors. And, and because people are so enamored of certain phrases like superposition and entanglement, and wow, they sounded amazing, right? They do sound pretty good. I'm sold, uh, I'm buying it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's like the nomenclature will sell you for some reason. What it boils down to is this, is that no matter how powerful your existing computers are, there are some problems that will remain completely intractable. And it's just the nature of the beast. 
Um, when we say a computer, we don't only mean those sorts of computers, the binary computers that we can build today. So what about these really hard problems? Are, are we hosed? <laughs> you know, do we just never be able to do it? And say, well, no, there's actually this glimmer of hope. And the idea is that if we have a completely different kind of computer, which is based on different principles, really from the very bottom all the way up, maybe this different type of computing is more amenable to solving these hard problems. In fact, that's exactly what quantum computing does. So, so now to the board, I would then say, and now let me tell you a few of the sorts of places where we think quantum computing might be really useful, right? So, so you, you, you ground it in saying what's different about it, but from the perspective of computability, and then you talk a little bit about the use cases and depending on who the board may be, and I do speak to boards, <laughs> and you have to change the message, um, you then try to adapt it for their industry. So I might choose quantum computing based on what I want to compute. Yes, the nature of the problem, that's right. And, and um, the, the easy area, if you will, to identify relates to problems um, that, that physicists sometimes refer to as a, occur in nature. And here we mean, um, oh, well, well, let me give you an example. So, you know, we have amazing supercomputers on the planet. You know, they're, they're petabytes and petabytes of information, a huge number of processing cores. They're, they're stunning. Now I'm gonna give you a simple example of a molecule, and this is caffeine. And I use caffeine because everybody knows what caffeine is, right? It's a very small molecule. Now, my goal here is to essentially put this caffeine molecule, take it out of the coffee cup and the test tube and the wet laboratory, but completely represent it faithfully inside a computer. So thinking about every sort of chemical reaction you might do in a test tube, I want to be able to simulate on a computer because it's not a big molecule. How hard could that be? Right. Um, and if I could do that, if I could take molecules, which are atoms and, and things like this, maybe if I think about the future, I could create new drugs, right? So instead of discovering drugs, I could compute them, right? I could see in the computer how they interact with other molecules like those in your body, <laughs> right? So, so therefore, okay, it's reasonable stick the molecule completely inside the computer, you know, completely model it perfectly, and then away we go. Well, it turns out that even this caffeine molecule is, has way, way too much information than you can reasonably fit in any sort of computer we have now. And the estimate is that even to just represent all the information about the energy that holds the molecules together and all the electrons, you could use as many bits, as many zero, zeros and ones, as about 10% of the size of the planet in terms of atoms. That's how many, 10 to the 48th zeros and ones. And the size of the planet atom-wise is 10 to the 49th to 10 to the 50th. One molecule, one instant, a tenth of the size of Earth in terms of the amount of storage you need. That's not gonna happen. Right. That's, uh, we're never going to build storage like that of classical computers. So, again, use my expression for are we hosed? Well, it turns out you could store that much information in a quantum computer with 160 qubits. And a qubit is a quantum bit. 
It's the, uh, it corresponds to the bit, but it's much more sophisticated in terms of what you can do with it and how you can store information. Today, our biggest computer is 50. If you kind of squint into the future, you can imagine, well, you know, these, these guys seem to have been working on this for a while. With, with luck and, and hard work, we'll get to 160, we'll get beyond in the future. So you have something, a very simple example, completely impossible forever classically. Okay, it seems like we might be able to do that. So this whole notion of chemistry and everything involving chemistry, which by the way is everything in your body and everything in the room behind you, right? Looks like we might be able to do some interesting work with quantum computing as one of the areas. I like it. And so what you're talking about when I'm just going to get, I'm going to show how little I know here. So when you're talking about representing caffeine, there's, uh, there's, there's softwares out there that represent these digital structures, but you're talking about at a, at a different resolution, right? I'm talking about not approximating it. That's right. Right. Okay. So, so you're talking about actual. Yeah. A, an exact representation. So 100% correct and complete model of that molecule. Whereas the softwares today that drug research companies use, things like that, they're just using representations that are watered down versions of it in order to do the modeling they need to do. That's right, to, to a few decimal points and only parts of the molecules. Got it. And, and it helps, I mean, there's no question, we'll, we'll certainly keep it. Um, we'll, we'll take it. <laughs> we'll take it, we're not gonna throw it away. Uh, in fact, one of the things we, we do, um, on the software side of quantum computing through the open source project we're involved with, which is called QuizKit, Q-I-S-K-I-T. Um, we interface with existing chemical systems, so, so chemical software. So if you're very familiar, if you're a chemist, you're used to using this sort of software, can we somehow under the covers start talking to a quantum computer so that you, know, you operate the way you like to operate, but suddenly, you know, your calculations become far, far more accurate than they were before. That's amazing. So you're saying that there's hope for a, a bridge between quantum computing and classical computing. Yes. And, and in fact, the future is such a hybrid. Um, we're, we're going to, so, I mean, just going back to my, my smartphone example, you know, there's no reason to have a quantum user interface. <laughs> classical <laughs> computing works very well. Thank you. So it's, it's, um, seeing you know which technology is best for which use um so, so that, that i'm sorry i you've just got me so interested so is that storage density only for chem, like specific types of data like the caffeine like because that's a huge storage density you were talking about so it's uh so we have to move from from let's say storage to the idea of working memory okay but this is the idea. So with quantum computations, um, it doesn't give you like disk storage, hard disk storage. What it yeah. does is while you're in the middle of a computation, um, there, there are certain cases that just blow up exponentially. All the different possibilities you would have to consider, right? And in this case, it's all the different electrons, uh, the relationships among them, um, the different states they can be in, right? That, that if you were to try to deal with it classically, you would either run out of room or run out of time. So another example that people are looking at, because they're not all chemistry, is um, let's say you have a hedge fund, 
Okay. Yeah. Everyone should. Lucky me. Yeah. I, I, it's my Everyone. project. Yeah. Well, I'll, br I'll bring it back home, you know. Um, but, but so you have a hedge fund. And, and the idea is that, look, you've got a lot of financial instruments. You know, some of them are run-of-the-mill stocks and bonds, but then you've got derivatives and, and things like this. Um, but the point is, is that they're, they're all kind of related to each other, right? So in the last few days, we've seen um, international uh, currency actions, which affect a lot of stock. Uh, different stocks and, and instruments. If you have a hurricane that's about to hit Florida, hey. <laughs> well, the price of plywood, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now you sound like, like Ray Dalio. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they're related, right? They are. And, and, and so the idea is that, you know, when you have this portfolio, it's not lots of individual, completely discrete things. And so if I want to assess the risk, right? for each of my financial position, or I want to even like, how much is this thing worth at the moment? I gotta say, well, but what if it's affected by that? And what if it's affected by this? And this is affected by this. The combinatorial explosion of the relationships among these, just you can't do this on a classical computer. So, so you choose a small subset, or you do a calculation that takes hours. Mm -hmm. And so now people say, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could do the whole thing for everything I'm interested in in five minutes? Because then I can run it many times a day and I could get more accurate information. Now, for you, okay, you may not have your personal hedge fund, but you may have a retirement account, right? And, and all the different stock combinations and things like this. So the same techniques that could be used to optimize what the billionaires use in their hedge funds could be used to optimize on a much more frequent basis the blend of stocks and bonds and whatever you have in your accounts as well. Now, now you know what this sounds like a great use for? Mm -hmm. So just this weekend, I geek out on the weekends. Like I look up future technologies, things of that nature, and I came across storage and DNA. Have you come across this? I, I've seen glimpses of it, yeah. Okay. The advancements are huge. Essentially, today we can take a data center and put it into a sugar cube. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's like 10 to the 19th of the storage density of that we that they currently have. I'll, I'll get you the actual company so you can watch their video about what they're doing. Okay. But it's primarily for long term storage. It's not for short term storage. Right. It's like for long term backups. They would, they would do this. And so they're building these machines that then write it to DNA and then they actually store it. And it's they put Wikipedia into DNA. It's like amazing. Mm -hmm. But they were talking about extracting it and how all the information is kind of everywhere at the same time. And if you watch the video, for some reason, there's this big connection right now in my mind between the way you're describing how quantum computing is useful and the problems that exist over that they're trying to solve in this long, long-term DNA storage on how to access it like at the same time. Mm -hmm. So there may be something interesting there. Yeah, I, th I think people will be experimenting like that. So here you're talking about, I, I guess what I would call tertiary storage, right? So primary storage is, you know, what's on your phone, what's on your laptop, maybe you have a backup in the cloud, which you could access. So that's secondary storage. And the tertiary is go take it, stick it in a mountain somewhere and I'll get it, you know, <laughs> when, when I need it. Um, in quantum, we're looking at storage as well. Um, and, and that brings us back to a point about quantum computing um, that, um, 
the way quantum computers work today are different from what you read in textbooks. And that is there's a difference between the pure mathematics and physical descriptions of qubits and algorithms and all these things from the actual implementation of qubits. So we have, you know, we build what are called physical qubits. And these are, you know, basically we create synthetic atoms or quantum particles. Uh, and we use them for computations. But because they're physical, there are some errors associated with them. Now, they're not perfect. So you don't set a value and then go away and you come back in a few hours, it's still there. Like you're very used to in your laptop and phone and, and whatever else. Um, so there's something called coherence time, which is the amount of time you have to work with a qubit, which is well less than a second. There are error rates. These things operate, our qubits operate close to absolute zero. So at absolute zero, nothing moves. Um, and we use the Kelvin scale. Uh, your body, if I remember this correctly, is something like 315 degrees Kelvin, right? Outer space is 2.7 degrees Kelvin. We keep it to 0.01 Kelvin. That's how cold, cold the thing is because of all the different quantum effects. So we have to, and the way progress is going to happen is to decrease these errors and eventually get to error correction. When we get to error correction fault tolerance, we should be able to build quantum memory. And so all the storage I talked about with caffeine or in some way what you were talking about with DNA, um, we hope over the next few decades, we'll be able to do something similar as well. But we're not there yet. That's probably at least a decade away. So right now we can process, we just have a very short window that we can run computations? That's right. That's right. So it limits the number of steps you can you can run, um, but research is showing that in fact you don't always need that many steps. So this is uh, I think a lot of people associate anything with the word quantum associate quantum with physics, but it's really become yes, it, it, it's physics, it's engineering, but it's computer science, it's mathematics, and all these things. Like this. So it's and software very much so. So when you're solving all these hard problems, I've found in life that engineering the right questions is vital to your success. Like, how do you go about asking the right questions? So it's, well, first of all, here's a, a little secret about quantum is today, even though we have some quantum computers, we cannot solve anything faster on a quantum computer than you can on a classical computer today. We hope to in the future, but they have to be bigger and they have to be more powerful. And, and we use this metric called quantum volume. Um, just like you used to measure gigahertz, right? The speed of your processor, you know, maybe 15 years ago. Um, it's not just the number of qubits. Please never discount the number of qubits. It's a terrible way of seeing how powerful. You need very good qubits that can talk to each other and you need to be able to program them and then find out what the result is and, and all these things like this. So there are lots of different pieces and quantum volume kinds of measures this. Um, so right now what people are doing is exactly what you, you described, saying what are the use cases where do we think quantum might be useful? And as I described it a little bit earlier, there are these situations where with a little bit of data, you know, like my portfolio, okay, we can get going here. And then suddenly inside the computation, there's just this blow up. You know, there's so many com combinations to consider. So that's where we look for quantum. 
So what we do now is saying, okay, that's a potential use case. Can we get on the right track? What algorithms might we apply to this problem so that as quantum computers get more powerful, our solution will scale and then be applicable? Uh, we have estimated um, that within 10 years, we should get to that point. And that's what we call quantum advantage. And um, that's the phrase we use. And it's very specifically about useful examples. It's not about artificial benchmarks that no one cares about, no one will use. It's like in finance and healthcare and chemistry and AI, right? All these areas where it really shows a difference. So that's the conservative estimate. Um, quantum volume should be big enough in 10 years. We also, though, say, you know, sometimes things happen a little bit faster. There are no guarantees here, but we wouldn't be shocked in three to five years because we make progress sometimes a little faster. People are exceptionally clever, <laughs> not just us, right? I mean, people out there using this. And we wouldn't be surprised if people came up with this. So a huge part of what we do is not just building hardware, right? Not just writing software. It's teaching people how to code in quantum. Uh, we started the IBM Q experience three years ago in May, uh, put it on the cloud. We've had 145,000 people register. They've run 27 million quantum calculations. Hold on a second now. You're telling me I can go and run a quantum calculation and write some quantum code right now? You have five minutes. Go and do it. Get out of here. Tell me, where do I go? Yeah. Just uh, do a web search for the IBM Q experience. Log in and, and you can get an account, but also the normal sorts of things. If you have a, a Google account, you can log into the IBM Q experience. You can uh, go to what we call the composer. You can drag and drop, create a little circuit. Uh, you can simulate it or you can run it on a real quantum computer. If you want to do coding. Wait, I can run something on a real quantum computer right now. Yeah. Yeah. I go to IBM Q experience. I, I search that uh, and then right. there, will, there will be some sort of like cloud quantum computing that's right. Service. Absolutely. And it's been there uh, in various forms since May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Uh, 2016. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's the only way I remember it. It's 2016. Yeah. And, um, and the software stack in the latest version, you don't have to download anything. So previously, if you were coding using QuizKit platform, which is written in Python 3, you would download it, you would do Jupyter Notebooks on your laptop, you can do all that in the cloud now. You don't have to download anything. Um, with QuizKit though, just like another stat, 210,000 downloads. So wow. maybe this is a little further along than some people have expected, right? I'm loving it. You know, so um, what's stopping people? <laughs> you know, we're oh, yeah. trying to, you know, it's, and it's no charge. By the way, you know, so, so it's no charge to use the IBM Q experience in, in, for the public offering, and the software is open source. So use it, learn about it, be that smart person who finds quantum advantage in whatever field, you know, you're interested in. Have you seen any, like, widely applicable business use cases that we could, th that we could throw out there? So... The, the, the way we, we've tried to stimulate that is through something called the IBM Q network. Okay. Right? Now, so these are partners like JP Morgan Chase, ExxonMobil, Daimler, Mercedes. Um, all together, we have over 70 different organizations. So we have the Fortune 50s, several of those in, in different areas. 
we have many startups that are in part of this. We have an academic program for um, really universities around the world. I mean, we cover, um, we have universities in the United States, Canada, uh, Japan, many countries in Europe, um, South Africa, um, several uh, in Asia, I said. Um, and it's uh, for universities, either to do research or for education, startups, obviously, you know, to whatever they feel they can do, and many other companies that just want to get up and running with this. Um, the Q Network people, um, the, the premium clients have access to our latest and greatest machines. So um, that is a commercial program, but as we come up with the newer quantum computers, they have first access to those. So those are the ones. So if you think about, you know, why would an ExxonMobil care? Why would a JP Morgan um, care about these? Um, so they're in their different areas. We have started to do uh, research papers. So we published a chemistry paper with Mitsubishi Chemical a few weeks ago. And so that's generally applicable, right? Um, and we have several other papers coming out with these partners as well. That's awesome. So they have, they'll have to, check out the IBM Q experience, play around with a little bit, figure out how, like what the good excuses to keep working on it at work, right? Because everyone wants to work on something cool at work, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it, maybe it's just part of continued education there in, you go. in the short term. But, um, you know, it's, it's um, the software stack is evolving, right? Um, many people, like if you were to go to college right now, if you weren't majoring in computer science, you would just learn let's say a high level language. You'd learn Python, maybe R for data science and things like this. Um, even in computer science, you know, the difference between now and 20 or 30 years ago, I learned assembly language because of course you can't code a computer unless you know at the very lowest level how to code. We've decided maybe not everyone needs to learn that. <laughs> right? But with quantum, we're sort of at that level and people do look at and, and use the whole stack. So we're rapidly trying to make the top level, the user-friendly libraries more useful. That's where we interface with chemistry. But at the lowest level, you're really using gates. Right? It's not ands and ors and nots and the logical gates, but you're using quantum gates. Oh, uh, that sounds exciting. It is kind of cool. And that's what you can use in the Q experience. You can drag and drop and create these things and see how the classic algorithms work for quantum. Yeah, I'm gonna play with it for sure because this is just, I, I don't if you have to choose between, like like you personally, I'm just gonna make you a choice. Like you never wanna choose between two kids, but here we go. <laughs> okay. Quantum computing and AI, which one is like, let's say you're, a six, you're back, you're 16 years old again, and you have to invest time into one of these two things, which one do you pick? Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult because there, there are different reasons to do it, right? And you can do quantum for AI as well. Um, so um, I think, so I personally have always been interested in programming languages, for example. And so for that reason, it, I would have tended to go toward quantum computing. Just me personally. Yeah. Um, if you are somebody who is far more data-driven, right, thinking about making sense of all this information, then you would probably do the AI approach, right? Um, so, so, so quantum would be my personal choice, but I, I certainly wouldn't slight anyone, you know, who, who followed AI. Um, 
and they should start thinking about how eventually quantum may, may help AI. And, and there's some interesting cases there. So let's say you work with a team on these research projects, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And you're obviously a leader in the field and you're, you're very knowledgeable and you speak. And so let's say you've got one of your team members and they're, they're stuck on a problem, a really hard one, and you're going to talk with them about how to get over that hump, maybe how to ask better questions or how to just get through the, the current struggle that they're facing. What sort of advice, like high level advice do you give them? When we started, so we've moved very quickly in three years. So if you had um, looked at what IBM Q was in terms of people three years ago, we felt much more like a startup. Now, albeit we were backed by IBM, which is a rather large company, um, and we'd had decades of experience working in the field. And so what that meant was um, there wasn't especially a whole lot of hierarchy in the team at that point. Um, um, but as we've gotten bigger and as you know, our plans have expanded and we're not just doing the hardware and software, we're doing everything I described before, like education, what's online, the, the business programs and things like this. We've had to have a lot of different people join. And, and, and so the reason why I, I'm going into this is we have all sorts of people. Right? We are not just filled with quantum scientists, right? We have people who um, very much are in tune with how to present this material using the latest tools, right? We have James Wooten, who's a scientist um, on our team out of Zurich, is like the foremost expert on quantum games, right? He has, um, there's an app for Android and iPhone called uh, Hello Quantum. And it's, people love it. It's quantum puzzles and, and it teaches you it's a beautiful little game, right? The biggest complaint we get is that there should be more of it, right? Um, but for some people, that, that's how you do that. So, so therefore, asking your question is, is, is a fairly general question because we have lot, lots of different people. But what we come back to over and over again, really, is whatever you're doing, who's your target audience? What's your segment here, right? So are you going after hardcore developers, right? Um, before you asked me about speaking to a board of directors, very different group. <laughs> very different group. What is your problem about you know, quantum? Um, we had a board of directors in last week and um, for, for a particular company and about a third of them were really interested in quantum. Uh, the other ones were like, eh, okay, <laughs> you know, they had other things and, 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 and that's fine. But the other ones were really fascinated by the potential of this in their fields, right? And, and what they're trying to do. So know thy audience, or in this case, you know, it's, uh, you're working on a problem, but who is the problem for, right? And how should we address this? Um, is it a technical problem? Is it a kind of so social understanding problem? Is it an educational problem? Um, I found a trick with the board, by the way, recently. Oh, oh, okay. Here, I'll show it to you. Okay. Actually, so I do, I do two or three meetings. They go, okay, right? And yep. then I thought, how am I, I need to communicate better to them. I need to show them the value of what we're actually doing. So I printed out our standards, uh, standard operating procedures, which goes into detail about how every section of our project works. And it's just like chopping down trees, essentially. And I brought the, the the beast of a binder with me. And the meeting where I did that, whoa, did they love it. 
Okay. <laughs> for some reason, that just translated way better to them. So for my specific audience, not saying it's applicable to everyone's. Um, yeah, it, it depends, uh, of course, whether we're speaking to our board. <laughs> right. <laughs> which I will not discuss our conversations with them, but, uh, or other people's boards. Right? Um, but it's, you know, t to whomever we're speaking, we're very lucky that quantum is this topic that just sells itself. The, t the phrase has been used in so much science fiction through the years. I mean, there were shows like Quantum Leap. Um, there was even the movie last year, Ant-Man and Wasp Woman. Um, <laughs> in the middle, they do this whole riff because the scientists are calling it, you know, quantum this and quantum that. And then Paul Rudd, who plays Ant-Man, said, do you people just put quantum in front of everything? And they looked at each other because, yes, that's exactly what, what, what they were doing. But, you know, people say, oh, you have a quantum computer? Can I see it? What does it do? I never thought we'd really have these. So it's, it's a conversation starter all by itself, which is lovely. Because sometimes, as we know in tech, we may love something and we really want to tell somebody and they say, well, maybe not today. Yeah. Um, so, um, so there's well, thank a- Thank you. By yeah. the way, thank you for spending your professional career, like a large chunk of it, helping us get to this thing that we as society have wanted for so long. Well, uh, I mean, I'm just involved now. I, uh, before this, I ran the math department, but the quantum guys were having so much fun that I felt I had to get involved. Yeah, you got to go to that um, party. But, but, you know, IBM research, this stuff, we had IBM fellows in the 1960s who were the, um, you know, the uh, fathers and I guess, I'd like, I guess great grandparents or whatever you want to call them of quantum information theory. Right? There was a, this huge activity in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s because we had built computers, but there wasn't the theory behind them. And in the 50s and 60s in particular, that's when they developed information theory. So this quantum stuff goes back decades before we could even build one. So I've got a question about your professional development. You've been at the company for so many years mm -hmm. and you started out and then you've grown with the organization for you know, over two decades. What sort of advice do you have for this next generation entering the workforce about, you know, what, what made you successful in doing that? So um, to, to be exact, I, I've been with IBM for over 36 years. And so like I, as long as you've been married then. Is even would that not, be longer? Not a coincidence. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. And in fact, I was a summer student even before then. Are you referring to IBM as your wife? <laughs> no, no, no. She's Judith. She's Judith. Um, and and so you know, for many people, it's like, how could you possibly be with the same company? Well, you know, when you are in a company that at different times is like you know between three hundred and fifty and four hundred thousand people, there are a lot of different jobs. And it is also a global company. I mean, I travel, you know, I, I was in South Korea a couple of months ago. You go, I, I go, I just walk in, I show my badge, I sit down, I have access to the IBM network. You know, it's like um, the IBM um, embassy. <laughs> if you but we do business everywhere. And so there, there is this sense when you're in a company like this, right, which is very different from, from being in a startup where I might jump from company to company to build the different types of experience that a career would normally have. So, so I, I have to acknowledge that first and foremost, so, so it's different. 
Now, my advice would be <laughs> is really understand what you yourself like to do, right? And so you can find yourself going toward jobs. Um, you know, certainly the financial aspect is important. I'm not belittling that at all, but understand at your core who you are, what sort of things you like to do. So I mentioned earlier, I like to build things, right? You know, so either coding or, you know, where I'm sitting now, little projects, right, around the house or, or whatever. I need that part of me. I was least happy in my career where all I was building, it seemed, was like a calendar to have more meetings about meetings. That didn't do it for me, right? And so identify what are these characteristics in yourself that will give you enough satisfaction in the work you do. Yes, I still do meetings. That's fine. I don't mind that. Um, but what I find myself now, having come around, starting out in math and science, I was in research for 15 years. I was on the business side for 13, and now I've been back for seven um, in research. And that's kind of a nice cycle, right? I, I, I was realizing toward the end of the business period, you know, minimally, I wanted to become a CTO or something. I needed much more tech in my life, right, than I was getting from those jobs I had. And, and here in IBM Research, you know, we're 3,200 people around the world um, in, in over a dozen labs. It's like a candy store of amazing technology. And, and it's why people love to come to work because you know, we've had six Nobel Prize winners associated with us. Whoa. Ten um, national um, medals of technology, right? Six national medals of science, Turing Awards. So you got these brilliant people all around, and it's just fun, you know? So if you're a tech person, do tech. <laughs> how, do I, how do I learn more? Let's say we've got some people listening, and they're just blown away by that, and they want to learn more about working with you or in that part of the organization. Where would they go? Uh, so IBM Research itself uh, has, uh, has a website, and um, there you'll see uh, the normal big picture view of, of what we've done in the history, and there are also profiles of researchers. Um, many of the people have to, about two-thirds, the number varies, um, have doctorates in IBM Research, but there are many people who do not. Um, we have technicians, we have software engineers, we have quantum software engineers, a new title. Um, and uh, you can see where, where it fits, right? Um, it's interesting to consider what you might do as a software engineer in a, let's say, startup, right? So you're very focused versus a research software engineer. Different roles, right? Different, different immediate goals and things like this. So um, there's a tremendous amount of room, I think is what I'm saying here. So don't feel that you, because you're involved in, you know, I'm speaking to any of your listeners, that you're involved in one section of tech, you know, you have to stay there, right? Or you just have to follow the money. You know, again, I'm not belittling the money, but what do you love? What part of it? Is it programming languages? Is it Kubernetes? Is it the cloud? You know, there's got to be something of all the things you do that, you know, given the choice, you asked me before if I had to choose between two things, given the choice, <laughs> What would you work on? Get that job. Okay. Uh, quantum Kubernetes. <laughs> quantum Kubernetes, yeah. <laughs> well, we're on the cloud, you know, and uh, there you go. 
Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I definitely learned a ton. I would, I would, de- I would absolutely check out the what they're doing with the DNA advancements because I, yes. I think you will find that it's almost the reason why I'm so attracted to to bring this up again to you is because as you were describing it, and I did a poor job of articulating it, but it seems like they were on opposite ends of the spectrum, like what you're experiencing with. Uh, the the quantum computing and the issues there, and then what the strengths are of the DNA storage. They seem like just complete opposites, which always kind of you know gets your spidey senses tingling. Yeah, I th- I think it's um, we ha- we have these stickers uh, that Jake Embedda, who's the head of our quantum program, uh, it, it's his quote, which is "You're thinking too classically." <laughs> And this very much applies to quantum because time and time again, we see people using the intuition they get from classical computing and quantum does not work that way very often. Same way, thinking what storage is, like everybody knows what storage is, it's you know, no, you know? So as you've described it, DNA, there are other techniques as well. You know, maybe that's, that's the future of what computing will be. We'll be using all of these in different combinations but the world will be really different in 50 or 100 years. So, so for all your, your particularly people earlier in their career, help make that weird, strange, wonderful new world. Oh, I love it. We're making the weird, strange, wonderful new world. Sure. Thank you so much for coming on and hanging out and talking about all of this great, nerdy, geeky stuff that makes me so excited. <laughs> My pleasure. Great to talk to you. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to get out there into the world? Um, just saying there, there are lots of places to learn um, uh, about this. Um, I have a playlist on YouTube of over 50 different videos that approach quantum from lots of different directions. Um, check those out. And the IBM Q experience is always evolving. Uh, we're about to release new tutorials, new videos, and things like that. So keep your eye on that to learn more about quantum. Excellent. What, what would I search on YouTube to find that so we can put it in the show notes? So if you just go to, to me, to Bob Sutor. Perfect. And then we'll put it in the show notes because people will definitely be interested in checking that out. Very good. All All right. right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 